Bibles open. We are, uh, and we're nearing the end of our time in the book of Luke, um, which is neat because we're going to be coming full circle. We started uh, this book last year, uh, really almost a year ago, with Advent. We went through chapters one and two uh, for last year's Advent series, and then we really spent the, the better part of the last year, with the exception of the summer. We paused for the summer for a different series, uh, but we've, we've spent the better part of the year walking through the gospel of Luke, and, and the Lord has had rich and intense and powerful um, words for us through this, and um, I think shaped who we we're called to be. But we're nearing the end now, and, and rapidly kind of moving toward the end, and we're actually um, leaving out pretty significant portions of the the narrative of the Passion Week in the last three chapters. We'll come back and grab some of those whenever we uh, walk through Easter. We'll, we'll we'll use the the Luke narratives to kind of walk through our Easter series. Uh, but man, right now we find ourselves. Um, in the middle of Jesus' trial and whenever he's going to be nearing the end of his, his earthly ministry where he goes to the cross and then resurrection. And it's neat that we're going to be coming full circle because as we get ready to prepare for Advent where we um, worship and thank God for sending Jesus for the Advent, the coming near of God into our midst, it's, it's neat to do that coming right off of the end of Jesus' life wherever, whenever he was brought to the cross um, put in a grave and resurrected, and then commissions his church and empowers them through the Holy Spirit. It's important to remember that the, the coming of Jesus, even though it's miraculous in and of itself, that, that he was born of a virgin, the coming of Jesus, even though the virgin birth, that in and of itself is not history worthy. That in itself is not going to change anybody's life. And really, to even have the the death and the resurrection, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ doesn't have the, salva- the, the saving power that it would have if Jesus isn't born of a virgin. And so these things tie together in a really full circle deal. And so right now, today, we find ourselves in the middle of Jesus' trial. And so as you've been watching with me um, and walking with me through this book, you know that the tension with Jesus and the religious leaders has been building, right, for really a couple of years. As Jesus has gone through and been doing his ministry they have been getting increasingly frustrated and anxious about him, and they have been plotting against him, hoping to find a way to get him off the street and kill him. Um, and it all culminates right here. As, as the, the people of God gather in the city of Jerusalem for the feast of the Passover, all of that kind of culminates. As different religious leaders from different areas where Jesus has ministered have now all come to the city and they start sharing stories with one another, sharing stories with the powerful leaders that are in Jerusalem. And as their their momentum kind of um, increases, so does their boldness. And they finally actually arrest Jesus with the help of Judas, of course. They um, arrest Jesus, which is an interesting thing. We didn't cover that uh, story, but I always wondered, like, why why did they need Judas to show them where Jesus was. Like, they've seen him, right? They've, they've, they've been confronted by him. They've talked to him. Like, they know. That, but here's what it was. They needed, they were in such fear of the people. They had this tension. They were terrified that Jesus was going to overthrow their power, and he was threatening to their rule. And, but Jesus had this huge following. And so they knew if they just arrested him out in the open, that they would start a riot, that people would uh, come at them for doing that. And so they wanted to arrest him in quiet, where they could then... Um, bring these accusations where people would, would not know, well, maybe Jesus did see that, or maybe Jesus did make these claims. And so they arrest him in the cover of darkness, and they take him, and they, um, they mock him, they blindfold him, they spit on him, they beat him, and then when day comes, they take him before the council. 
and they think they've got him. And they are, they, they've got him arrested now, which is a big step, but they want this guy gone, right? They want him gone altogether. Now, they're going to face two obstacles to get that done. First of which is they by themselves, the Jewish religious leaders, even the, the Jewish government officials, don't have the authority to crucify anybody, to execute um, anyone. That is reserved, like they're ruled by the Romans and only the Romans are allowed to execute somebody. So that's obstacle one. Obstacle two is the Romans don't generally give a rip about their religious squabbles. Like the, the, the Romans don't care. And so they've got to present this in a way that the Roman government officials will care enough to actually put Jesus to death. And so that's where we pick up our story. And they, they bring Jesus before Pilate. So we're going to read through this. We're going to make some observations. And then I'm going to ask us to, to see ourselves in the story really in three different ways. Um, I want to see ourselves as Pilate, I want to see ourselves as the crowd, and then see ourselves as Barabbas. And I want to let that um, drive the gospel deep into our hearts. So we're going to walk through this briefly, uh, starting in chapter 23 that Jenna just read for us, verse 1. So they bring, the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate, and they began to accuse him, saying, we found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar. Now, is that true? For those of you here a few weeks ago when we looked at Luke 20, did he forbid them to give tribute to Caesar? No, right? He navigated that. He says, hey, you give to Caesar what's Caesar and give to God what is God. So, so, so we already know they're, they're fabricating the story. They're trumping it up. They're trying to get Pilate to care enough to actually put him to death. So they say, hey, we, he's forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar. And this is the one they know will get Pilate interested and in that he himself is Christ, a king. And so that claim right there is what's going to perk up the ears of the Roman officials. That's why they would care at all. If they think that there's somebody that is uh, claiming to be king and is going to threaten their power and has the, the uh, approval of this huge mob and mass of people, that's where they're going to start being concerned. That's whenever they're going to start um, listening and want to get involved. And really, they're going to now want to get Jesus off the street as well. So Pilate looks at him, verse 3, and asks him, Are you the king of the Jews? Now you've got to think, Jesus has been blindfolded, beaten, and spat upon all night. And so as, as Pilate asks him this question, you've got to think there's a little bit of like, You? Like, you? You're, you're, the, you're the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered him, You have said so. And then Pilate said to the chief priest in the crowd, I find no guilt in this man. But they were urgent, saying, He stirs up all the people, teaching throughout all Judea and from Galilee, even to this place. So when, when Pilate hears that, Pilate says, I, I, I see no guilt in this guy. I don't know why you wanted me to do this. And, they, and then they go on and they say, No, 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 he's stirring up uh, uh, a re revolution all over, all the way back to Galilee. And when he hears that, he goes, Oh, this guy's in Herod's jurisdiction. And conveniently, Herod's in town for the Passover. And so, man, take that guy to Herod. Like, I, let him deal with him. And so we, we skip this portion, but that's what happens. They take him to Herod, and Herod strangely has the same conclusion. He goes, there's no guilt in this guy. And for both of these Roman government officials to have this reaction um, is really incredible, to the point that they were previously enemies. And you'll see, we didn't read verse 12, but it says, Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that day, for before this they had been at enmity with each other. And so this... this uh, this whole trial with Jesus actually unites these two enemies in a, in a strange and weird way. But both of them come to the conclusion that there's no guilt in this man. And, and listen, Pilate's not a pushover, right? This guy is um, documented throughout history for, for not really caring and giving regard to the Jewish relig uh, religious traditions. You put words together, they just don't work out real well. Religious and tradition, religious, I don't know. Um, excuse me, I, too much caffeine. Um, 
Pilate is, is documented throughout history for um, not regarding the Jewish traditions and, in fact, causing several uh, revolution, re- revolts of his own because he just doesn't care. And so this is not a guy that's going to easily cave or be persuaded, um, and yet he and Herod say they find no guilt. And back to, so then they bring him back to Pilate in verse 13. Pilate then called together the chief priest and the rulers of the people. These are the people that are bringing the accusations. And he said to them, you brought me this man as one who was misleading the people. And after examining him before, before you, behold, I do not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. And neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. I will therefore punish him and release him. But they cried out all together, away with this man and release to us Barabbas. Now, uh, it was tradition in that, in that day to actually release a prisoner um, as a part of the festival, as a part of the ceremonial deals. And so, um, so Pilate has kind of put this scenario together saying, um, all right, it's tradition for me to give back one of your prisoners on this day. And so Pilate picks this man named Barabbas on purpose because Barabbas is not just like like kind of a criminal, he's a, a well-known murderer. This guy's guilty, locked up, and, and he's scheduled to be executed. He's scheduled to die on the cross. You've got to think that this whole crucifixion deal was not just a special deal for Jesus. Like they had a whole line of people. It's like, all right, and and you, you remember Jesus was crucified in the middle between two thieves. And so this was a scheduled execution where Barabbas is, is, has been found guilty. He's waiting in jail, and he knows that he deserves to die. And so Pilate kind of picks this guy going, all right, well, I'm going to you know, give them the option because Pilate wants out of this deal. That's what you start seeing. Like Pilate does not want to, to crucify this man. He, he tries several times. First, he was saying, I find no guilt in him. They come at him again. He says, all right, we'll take him to Herod. Herod doesn't find any guilt in him. And he says again, like, I, I do not find this, that this man has done anything worthy of death. I'll, I'll, I'll beat him, and then, but I've got to release him. Like there's nothing there. Um, and they, they, again, the crowd comes out and says, Away with him, release to us Barabbas, a man who had been thrown into prison for, insurrection and started, or in, for an insurrection started in the city and for murder. Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus. You need to hear that from Pilate. But they kept shouting, Crucify him, crucify him. A third time he said to them, Why? What evil has he done? I have found in him no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified. And their voices prevailed. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. And he released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, for for whom they asked, but he delivered Jesus over to their will. So this is an incredible Story, one that we're probably too familiar with to really get the full impact. But I want you to think about Pilate for a moment. And before you just judge Pilate and think, man, what, like, how could he do that? He, he said it three times. I find no guilt in this man. How could he go ahead and allow this to happen? How could he go ahead and cave to the crowd? And I want you to think about this for a moment. I want you to think about what the driving force is behind Pilate and, and, and that he's the self-protection that's going on. Like he likes his position. He likes his his, his place of rule and influence and his comfortable life. And he knows that if he, if he goes against this crowd, that they're going to cause, like, cause a lot of trouble for him to the point that he might lose. Like if, if Caesar and the, the guys above him find out that he's let this kind of um, trouble and insurrection arise in his jurisdiction, like they're going to 
remove him from power. And so those are the types of things that are going on in Pilate. But still, you've got you to realize he, he's, he knows, he sees, he knows, he has a gut-level conviction. This guy's not guilty. This guy does not deserve death. And yet, he's persuaded. He's persuaded by the cries of the people. I want you to think about this. Before you judge, I want you to think about how often do we, how often do you, how often do I, do what's easy instead of what's right? Again, this is a big deal. This is the crucifixion of Jesus. But if you just boil this down to everyday life for you, how often do you just give in to what's easy? Give in to what you know will cause you less trouble, make your life easier, instead of doing what's right. Instead of speaking up, instead of obeying the Lord, instead of you know, speaking up and calling somebody out at work whenever they're making... You know, you think back to bullying that happens most commonly in school, but not just in school. Man, it's just easier to not say anything, right? I was reminded this week uh, at a wedding, um, one of the family members, uh, her mom used to be my principal, and, and she said hi. And all I can remember about her mom being my principal is it was like one of my darkest hours. Like as a kid, uh, whenever I was in middle school, I think, sixth or seventh grade, um, there was some guys that were just totally picking on this girl that was um, overweight and from a busted family and just got made fun of all the time. And, and as a result, like her defense mechanism was just kind of to be loud. And, and so um, that's just kind of the dynamic that was always going on. And I joined them in, in really um, disrespecting her. And I remember spending a week in detention with this particular um, principal. And so that just kind of stirred back up in me as, as uh, this, this gal said, oh, yeah, my mom said to tell you hi. And she was one of, you know, she loved you. And I was like, man, that's all I remember is that she, like, she was the one I had to sit across the desk from and admit that I had um, joined in disrespecting this, this woman, this girl in such a, a terrible way. But you know why I did it? Because my friends were doing it. And it was easier, right? It was easier to join them in disrespecting this woman than it was to stand up for what's right and call out my friends. And, and so how often do we do that in, in different areas of our life? And, and some of you, like, you're so familiar with this. Like, you, you've so lost your ability to, to have a backbone, to stand up for what's right, that you don't know what's going to change. Like, you're like, yeah, I mean, that's me, but, like, I, I, don't, I don't have the gumption. I don't know what's going to change. And I want, you to, I want you to just keep that in mind as we keep walking through this passage. We're going to see the power of the gospel that doesn't change Pilate, but it changes some other people in this story. And the second people that I want us to kind of look at is the crowd. This is the same crowd that whenever Jesus rode into Jerusalem, um, cried out, Hosanna, Hosanna, and put down palm leaves, and were, were so eager to, he, to see their king come in. And now, because of the influence of the religious leaders, because of the stories that they're telling and stirring up, they uh, go from worshiping Jesus to... Um, crying out for his crucifixion. And the posture of these people is so intense that even after Pilate says three to four times, I I see no guilt in this man. This man's done nothing wrong. They still cry out, crucify him. Even when they're presented with Jesus or Barabbas, a murderer, a known murderer, they say, yeah, yeah, give us Barabbas. Like we'd rather live with a murderer in our midst than the Son of God. We'd rather, and, and you got to think about why. Like, what's going on in their hearts that, that allows them to have such an evil and, and hard-hearted response? And, and I think John 
chapter 3, verses 19 and 20, that right after the famous John 3, 16, um, the Bible says this. It says that, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. I think what, what you're seeing happen with these people is that Jesus is threat, like Jesus is a threat to their way of life. Jesus is a threat to them just doing life the way that they want to do, to doing the things that they've set up to do. They've set up their own worldview of what's good, what's right, what's wrong, and, and really what brings them acceptance in the world and what makes them feel good about their morality. And Jesus is a threat to all of that. And so their sin is so strong that to the point that like, here, you just got to see yourself in this. Like the Bible says that that we, apart from Christ, are dead. Like dead in our sin. Like that we are in such rebellion to the Lord that like it's not just, uh, you know, maybe we'll, we'll see, like maybe we'll be good enough, maybe we'll decide to choose Christ. The Bible says that, that we're just cold, cold, dead sinners. That we, like nothing in us, Romans 3 says, chooses God. Nothing in us runs after God and wants to do what's right. That we all, by nature, are rebellious against the Lord. And that's our posture. Like, we are these people that would rather live with our own sin. We'd rather live with the evil amongst us than to submit to Jesus, to have Jesus and the light expose our darkness, expose what's truly going on in our heart. Like, we will fight to preserve that. We'll fight to preserve our secret sin, uh, the loves of, of our life, like the guilt, the things that no, we don't want anybody else to see. Like you think about that moment in your life whenever you're about to be found out, whenever you're about to be exposed and your deepest secrets are about to be known and, and what you'll do in that moment to avoid that, the lies you'll tell, the people you'll blame. We'll see ourselves in the crowd and then as we think about that, as we think about cowardice that pervades so many of our lives where we're, we constantly do what's easy instead of what's right. And we think about our posture toward the Lord where we're in constant rebellion and we're, we, we just seem to love sin more than we love God and more than we love the light. We love the darkness and, the, and our precious sins. Like when we think about those things, it, like the natural question you need to be asking is, how do I change? Like what causes me to change? Like how can I get over this? Like I've tried to just do better. I've tried to just... Get my life in order and it doesn't work. And if you're here and you're visiting with us, like we try to say often at the, at the journey, that, man, the gospel is not about self-help. It's not about, like, here's seven ways to get your life in order. Actually, the gospel is, is to say, I can't. I got nothing, Lord. And unless you save me, redeem me, show mercy to me, then I'm hopeless. So as we move into the last part of the story, I think the, the way that we find hope, find transformation, find true change from cowardice, from our, our love of sin, our rebellion against the Lord, is actually to see ourselves as Barabbas. Because in this picture, in this, this story here, which is an incredible story, we see the gospel, the substitution of Jesus is so clearly portrayed right here in this story as Barabbas, a man who is known to be a murderer, who's locked up, deserves it. He's not even fighting it. He knows he deserves to be crucified. And yet, I want you to think about his posture. I want you to think about what his day was like. He knows he's about to be crucified soon, right? He's, he's on death row. Like, he, he knows that his time has come up. And then all of a sudden, the guards come to his cell. 
and they open it up and let him out. You gotta, what kind of questions is he asking? What's going on in his heart? Like, how could this be? Like, and, and then for him to look at Jesus and to see Jesus, this man who has clearly been beaten, this man who is just a, a leader and a teacher and a performer of miracles, he's going to take my place? This doesn't make any sense. Like, I, I'm guilty. I know what I did. It's really clear what I did, and yet somehow I'm being exchanged for him. And I think when we see ourselves as rabbits, when we see ourselves as the ones who actually deserve to be on the cross, when we realize that we are in our sin, convicted, guilty, hopeless, sentenced to death. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. So if you're here and, and you're just like, man, I just, I just really want to get my life straight. I was hoping you guys could help me out with that. Like, just know that we're not going to give you a list of to-dos. In fact, the message that we have is, yeah, you can't get your life straight. You're guilty. You're, you're a sinner. Just like all of us are, but that's the good news. That's why we say what we say at the beginning of all our services. We want you to know that it's not just you that are a sinner. Like That's, that's what you've told yourself. Maybe that's what the world has told you, that, that you know, if anybody knew what you had really done or what had been done to you, if anybody knew your secrets, then man, they wouldn't even allow you to be in this room. We know people that have said, man, I couldn't, you know, I couldn't come through the doors of a church. Like the whole thing would catch on fire or whatever. Like we have this posture of like, there's no way, there's no way I could be accepted. There's no way I got to get myself together. And maybe I can just go here and they can help me get myself together. And the, the news of the gospel is, nope, we can't help you get yourself together. You can't get yourself together. You are a sinner condemned to death. And unless a savior steps in, you, you have no hope. But the good news is, it's pictured right here. At the end, you've got, you've got to see the imagery here. If you're reading the Bible, if, you, if you've stuck with it and read it this year, and, and you're seeing the big picture come together, and you've seen how the people of God have been shaped and formed by these rituals and these festivals and these, um, all of these things that God has had them do to remind them of the way that he's worked in their life, to remind them of who he is, you think about this, this last little bit of imagery that, that God's going to insert into this story. Jerusalem, what's happening in that moment? The Passover, right? What's the Passover? The Passover is this meal that the people of God have been observing for years, ever since he rescued them out of Egypt. If you remember the story of God rescuing his people out of Egypt, a lot of, we know about the plagues, we know about him parting the Red Sea, uh, but we often forget about that final plague, the plague, the death of the firstborn, when the death angel was going to come and pass over all the land in Egypt and kill the firstborn son of every family. And what, God, what did God tell his people to do in that moment? He says, you take a lamb. And it needs to be a perfect lamb. Not just like the one that, you know, yeah, I'm really not going to use that. No, no, your best lamb. The one without blemish. The one without spot. I want you to take it. And I want you to slaughter it. And I want you to put its blood over the doorpost of your home. And whenever the death angel comes, he'll see the blood. And he'll know that the lamb has died instead of your son. Instead of your family suffering, that lamb suffered in its place. And for generations now, for thousands of years, the people, the, the Israelite Jewish people have celebrated Passover by preparing that same meal and by remembering that God saved them that day from the death that they deserved. He saved them by killing the lamb instead. 
So this is, a, this is a, something that has shaped this people for ages now. And yet this festival has come and Jesus enters in to Jerusalem. And the man who's supposed to die, the man whose record is full, his rap sheet is long, he gets to step out and go free. And Jesus, the innocent Lamb of God, puts himself in their place. And it's one bit of imagery before Jesus goes to the cross. And as John said, when John looked up and saw Jesus walking to him, he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That this is what we're to see in the story of Barabbas, that we deserve death. But the way of salvation comes through Jesus dying in our place. That we see ourselves as Barabbas, and this is what transforms our life. Seeing ourselves as we're the ones that belong on the cross. We're the ones that belong in the grave. And yet Jesus ends up there. This is the transforming power of the gospel. This is what changes lives. And the proof is in Acts 2. It's this incredible story. Luke and Acts go together. And Derek's going to talk a little bit more about that next week. But, but Luke and Acts go together. It, it's it's uh, written by the same author. It's really a, a two-part book. And, and what's incredible is after Jesus is put on the cross, he's put in the grave, and then he comes back out of the grave, and he appears to over 500 people for 40 days. And then as he leaves, he ascends into heaven, he commissions his church. You've got to tell everybody you can, this is the way of salvation. The king has established his kingdom, and you go and tell everybody that there's pardon available. And what we see is in Acts 2 is that Peter, God does a mighty work. The Spirit falls on people, um, and gets everybody's attention, and Peter gets up and preaches to um, thousands of people. We don't know how many, but we know that 3,000 responded that day. And what Peter does in that moment, he addresses them directly, the crowd. They're wondering what's going on, and Peter says, you want to know what's going on? You killed the Messiah. And he uses this language. He says, Jesus was the Messiah, the Lamb of God sent to take away the sins of the world, and, and you crucified him. He, he's speaking to these people saying, you were the ones that were there crying out, crucify him. You were the ones saying, no, no, give us Barabbas. You are the ones that took Jesus to the cross. And in that moment, they're, they're condemned and they're, they're hopeless and, and their judgment has been made, but, but they're cut to the heart, it says in Acts 2. They say, what should we do? Peter says, you repent. You trust in the Savior that you slaughtered you can be saved. Your sins can be forgiven. Your life can be made new. And what we see is those people who were in that crowd yelling, crucify him, crucify him, give us Barabbas. They become the people that surrender their lives. They don't try to get better. They just say, yeah, have mercy on me, a sinner. I repent and I trust you as my savior. And then we see in just a few verses later, over 3,000 people are added to the number of the church that day. And just a few verses later, those people who were yelling out, crucify him, are now gathering together around the Lord's table and sharing everything that they have. No, they're, no, they're no longer cowards that are doing what's easy instead of what's right. In fact, they're giving their, their possessions away. They're saying, hey, you have a need? I, I've got like, you, you don't have a car? I've got two. You take one. You don't have any bread? I've got a lot. Here, you take some. You need some money to pay your bills? I'll pay them. Like, let's just join our stuff. Like, the, the picture that we see of what church is supposed to be like, living in community, caring for one another in Acts 2, 42 through 47, like, those people are the same people that were here. 
In Luke 23, it's incredible. Their lives are transformed by the power of the gospel to the point that not only are they no longer cowards, they are disciples of Jesus, and many of them lost their life as martyrs for Jesus. The transforming power of the gospel is in the work of Jesus on the cross, the substitutionary atonement, meaning we deserve wrath, we deserve death, and Jesus says, I'll take it for you. I'll take it for you. That's the transforming power of the gospel. It's not do better, it's not... Live better, follow the rules. Let's now see Jesus for who he is. See your, first, see yourself who you, for who you are, that you are Barabbas, that you were the crowd that would rather live with a murderer than to have your sins exposed by the Son of God, that, that we are without hope. When we see ourselves for who we are and then we see Jesus for who he is, that's when our lives are changed. And not just the first time, not just once, so that we, we, we get our sins forgiven and we have this good feeling, we get baptized and we go on. No, like that, that's where the power of the gospel stays. And it's not just for salvation, but it's also for sanctification. And for those of you who are struggling and you, you don't know why you can't get over these sins, you don't know why you can't move past this in your life, and you don't know why you can't experience the full redemption of, of Jesus, it's probably because you're trying to do it yourself again. That you think, okay, I need Jesus for salvation, but I gotta do this sanctification thing. I gotta do this growing and getting better thing on my own. Jesus says, no, no, no. Like, it's the gospel. It's always the gospel. It's the gospel in the beginning. It's the gospel in the middle. It's the gospel in the end. Like, it's the gospel that changes us. So we don't look at ourselves and go, man, I, got, I really gotta get better. We look at ourselves and go, man, I'm a hopeless wretch. But Jesus, but Jesus, he loves me. Romans 5, 7 and 8 says that, God displayed his love for us in this way, that while we were still sinners, not when we got it figured out, when we were worthy, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's where the power of the gospel lies, and we have to see ourselves in that story before we can really rejoice in the salvation of Jesus. I want to close by reading a poem that's written about this, this very moment in Scripture, this very moment in time, by a Scottish pastor, pastor named Horatius Benar. I want you to just listen to the words, and I want to let these words stir in your heart, and then we'll pray, and we'll receive communion, and we'll worship. I want to let these words move us to a place of gratitude for the cross and for the love of Jesus that's displayed amongst people that don't deserve it. I want you to thank Jesus, saying, forgive them, Father. They don't know what they do. I want you to just think about the love of our Savior and that it, it's us that put him there, and that's the point of this poem. It says, I see the crowds in Pilate's hall. Their furious cries I hear. Their shouts of crucify, appall. Their curses fill mine ear. And of that shouting multitude, I feel that I am one. And in that den of voices rude, I recognize my own. I see the scourgers rend the flesh of God's beloved son. And as they smite, I feel afresh that I am of them, am, I of them am one. Around the cross, the throng I see that mock the sufferer's groan. Yet still, my voice, it seems to be as if I mocked alone. Twas I that Shed that sacred blood. I nailed him to the tree. I crucified the Christ of God. I joined the mockery. Yet not the less that blood avails to cleanse me from my sin. 
And not the less, that cross prevails to give me peace within. Let's pray. Jesus, we have nothing that we bring in the face of this truth except surrender, except gratitude, except our worship. That though we are the ones that committed the sins that took you to the cross, that we are the ones that resisted your love, that ran away from you, spat in your face, So what hope for us, Lord? There's none except the cross. To know this truth and to know then that the blood that was shed was for our sins, that, that, that there's still power in the blood to wash us clean, to give us new life, that, that you looked right at the crowd that had yelled crucify him and put you there and you said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. That we were so helpless, Lord, that you had to come to us, that you had to reveal your holiness through the work of the cross so that we could even have the eyes to see our need. Jesus, would you do that work here in our midst this morning? Would you, would you cause the scales to fall off of eyes of anybody here that doesn't know Jesus as Savior? And, and I'm talking, Lord, if there's somebody here that just would say that they're a Christian, but they've never been moved by the holiness of, of you and by the depth of their sin, and they've never let themselves be washed in the blood and be overwhelmed by the power of the cross, that you would do that today, that you would reveal yourself for who you are, that, that you would cause the scales to fall and the eyes of their hearts to be open, Lord, and that you give them faith to respond and just surrender. For the rest of us, Lord, help us to be moved by the gospel in a fresh way, to remember that we didn't deserve your love. In fact, we deserved death. We were Barabbas, locked up and condemned on death row. And you came and took our place. May we be moved by that. May that cause us to worship. And as we worship, may the power of sin loosen its grip on us because we give more and more of our heart over to you. Would you do that kind of saving work in our midst right now in this moment? We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.